Oh, sweet 16. You remember what it was like? You can get your driver's license. You can own a gun. You can fly a plane. You can have sex. But you can't vote. Yet. The Green Party says lowering the voting age to 16 is now a priority. And the global climate strike movement by school kids has helped spark the move. A grassroots movement is emerging both here and overseas to change the age of suffrage to include 16 and 17 year olds. But would lowering the voting age result in more democracy or a dumbing down of our current political system? There is the one view which is these people are too young, they're not mature enough, they don't have mortgages, they haven't got degrees, they can't do it. Mm. And there is another view which says that because of the huge baby boomer bubble that we're having, um, young people are being unfairly treated... I'm Emile Donovan, and today on The Detail, we're speaking to Gina dow McClay. She's a co-director of the Make It 16 campaign, which is looking to, um, well, to make the voting age 16. And just a couple of hours before our interview, we got some pretty big news. Having weighed up all these factors and taken wide soundings, I have decided on balance to move the election by four weeks to the 17th of October. Now, this was big news for all of us, but it was even bigger news for Gina. Well, with the original date being September 19th, um, unfortunately, I, I wouldn't have been able to vote because my 18th birthday is September 27th. Um, but with that election delay, it means I can vote now. So presumably because you were pushing this for purely selfish issues, you're going to be stepping down from the Make It 16 campaign? That thought did cross my mind. I was like, hmm, what, what am I doing in this campaign now? But no, I'm, I'm still a massive believer that voting is a human right and, you know, 16 and 17 year olds deserve the right to be voting in that election just as much as I and everyone else will be able to vote do. You might instinctively think of this as a naive, we start up teenage fantasy kind of thing. But if the past couple of years have taught us anything, it's that you underestimate the Zoomers at your peril. Thousands of children called on adults to get real about climate change in mass protests around the country today. Students from secondary schools, primary schools and even early childhood centres skipped classes for the second school strike for climate. And they're taking the voting age issue pretty seriously too. They're actually going to the High Court this week to argue this. The voting age of 18 is unjustified age discrimination and a breach of human rights. And um, We've got a um, awesome team of lawyers who um, have been working on this case with us. The court case won't be resolved by Election Day, but the Make It 16 team is still keen to make their argument. But before we get into the nuts and bolts of that argument, maybe just a little taste of the history of the voting age. In 1853, the year of New Zealand's first national elections, you had to jump through a series of flaming hoops in order to exercise your democratic right to vote. You had to be a bloke... Uh, a British subject, at least 21 years old, you had to own land worth at least £50 or, if you're renting, be paying at least £10 a year and not be in prison. The establishment of Māori seats in 1867 enabled Māori men to vote without needing to meet those property requirements. And then, as we all probably remember, suffrage was extended to women in 1893. 
Still, for more than a century, the age was 21, temporarily extended to include younger people during each of the world wars, until it was lowered in 1969 to 20, and then in 1974 to 18. But since then, not much has happened here. In 2007, former Green MP Sue Bradford intended to introduce a member's bill to have the age lowered, but withdrew it soon after, citing an adverse public reaction. And boy, is the public hostile to the idea. A 2014 poll of some 3,000 adults showed just 7% supported the idea. So why does Gina Dale-McLeod reckon 16 and 17-year-olds should be able to vote? The main thing we believe is that voting is a fundamental human right and giving 16 and 17-year-olds the right to vote would mean a much stronger and fairer democracy where more people's voices can be represented in New Zealand's parliament. Um, and, you know, New Zealand and the whole world actually face some really immense challenges, some massive global issues, and um, young people need to have a say on the way that those politicians deal with those issues, the way that, you know, who those politicians are that will be making those decisions. You know, there are no, like, tests or anything that anyone or any country that I am aware of have to do before someone gets that right to vote. And um, if there was a certain barrier like that or, you know, having people have to have a certain level of education would actually be a bit of ableism in terms of people being able to vote. Um, You know, there's no tests or there's no certain level someone has to have currently who's over 18 to be able to vote. And so, you know, there's perhaps some um, other, like, psychological things and more studies that could make a case for not having it. Um, above a certain age, but I think that there shouldn't be a level of education once someone has to have before being able to vote. The argument against this basically boils down to 16-year-olds are dumb, right? Like, Which is a patronising no. argument in and of itself. But, but I was actually thinking back to when I was 16, and I wasn't super, super crazy smart, but I, I was a reasonably clued in 16-year-old. I can absolutely tell you I could not have given a toss about politics when I was 16. I probably would have voted in concert with family because, you know, I was, <laughs> I was 16. Yeah, I think, you know, when you say that, you know, at 16 you might not have voted or you wouldn't have really cared, you know, there's people who are... 25, 30 who don't really care and don't vote as well. Um, but also with that, you know, about you voting the same way as your family, like there's definitely people out there who will vote the same way as their family. You know, they've um, instilled certain values in them that they will bring to them when they um, vote in the polls. But also, you know, a lot of us, like I definitely am not going to be voting the same way as my parents. You know, we all come from different backgrounds and have different experiences that we take to us when we are voting. Um, and so whilst I may choose to do the same as their, um, as their family and their friends, some definitely won't as well. But opponents of the idea are equally strident. Here is the barrister and political commentator Liam Hare speaking to Wallace Chapman back in July. In the first place, I think, you know, there's a recognition, growing recognition, of course, that, uh, you know, it takes longer and longer for children to, uh, to, to grow and mature and develop. And, you know, we see a trend in a lot of, in a lot of areas where we actually defer responsibility for children for longer and longer now. I don't think giving children the vote um, is uh, is consistent with that. Uh, but also, I, increasingly, I think, in a, in, a, in a very political world that we live in, where everything is politicised, you know, uh, we shouldn't necessarily be encouraging children to get too interested in politics before they have to, you know? I mean, the innocent of, innocence of childhood is something that, you know, it's, it's something we take for granted a little bit. And I, I worry that... If we push voting into schools, then uh, then, then we, we bring it even shorter. You know, and yet you can shorter. you can apply for a firearms license, sixteen, and fly a plane solo, uh, legally consent to sex, but not vote. 
Well, those things are um, those are examples of where we do allow some rights to accrue um, from the age of 16. You know, those are things where I think we're talking about what the criminal law is or what hobbies we allow children to engage in. It's not the same thing as saying that they're full, fully-fledged members of the polis or that we expect them to be fully-fledged members of the polis. In a sense, that's a pretty compelling argument, right? The children are our future, yada, yada. Why would we want to poison their minds with stories of, you know, monetary policies and budget forecasts and this? Oh, nothing. Nothing. Slushies! Calvin Davis says $193, nearly $6,000 slushy machines. Well, Grant Robertson drank them all! Dr Bronwyn Wood is a senior lecturer at Victoria University's School of Education. Our democracy depends on the ability for young people to be both um, informed and also engaged. And a weak democracy is where we have large chunks of the population not even participating because they then aren't um, represented in any of the decisions made by the people who are then elected into power. So democracy depends entirely on an informed and educated and active citizenry. So it's incredibly important for us to pursue the idea of encouraging young people to become engaged and informed. I mean, let me just ask you, outright. Well, what are your thoughts on that? Do you think the voting age should be lowered to 16? I hold a slightly nuanced position in that I think... There is a lot of evidence emerging from the countries which have done this that um, young people do turn out and vote at a higher rate. Um, So this is countries like Austria, um, Estonia, uh, large uh, some countries across Latin America and so on. But what we have found also in that research is that there is some patchiness in what 16 and 17-year-olds know. And so, yes, I'm supportive of lowering the vote um, if there's strong citizenship education offered to those students so that they come in really well informed. The the critics of this say that some adults aren't well informed either, um, but I think we should continue to have a strong premise that we should have young people as informed as possible as they begin to vote. Bronwyn mentioned citizenship education there. That's sort of an alternative phrase for civics education, and we'll get to that in a second. But first, let's look at some of the countries which have lowered their voting ages to 16. For example, Scotland. We think the Scottish government has taken a momentous decision to give 16 and 17-year-olds the vote in the future of Scotland, a referendum that's going to be taking place later this year. The reason we feel so strongly about it is we have a democratic crisis in the UK where millions of people are turning off and tuning out from politics altogether and we think to stem that tide we need to start young and instill in a new generation a voting habit for life and hopefully not just the habit of voting but participation more generally in our democracy. Yeah back in 2013 Scotland lowered the voting age to 16 for the upcoming Scottish independence referendum. A couple of years later the Scottish Parliament voted unanimously to reduce the age to 16 for Scottish Parliament and local government elections. And remarkably the 16 and 17 year old turnout ended up being 75% that's 21 points higher than the 18 to 24 age group and 3 points higher than the 25 to 34 cohort. 
But we are talking about New Zealand here, and the youth turnout here is um, bad. It's bad. Young New Zealanders' turnout in this month's, well, next month's election, looks set to continue the downward trend seen in recent decades. Nearly a quarter of voters under 30 have yet to enrol. Which leads to a fair question. Why would you look to extend the voting age when young voters, statistically anyway, are already pretty apathetic? Here's Bronwyn Wood. One of the really tricky things to recognise is the life stage where even your electoral papers go missing because you've left home to go to university, you're chasing around the country trying to find the place to vote. I have an 18-year-old in Otago. His papers are sitting with me now and I'm trying to decide whether... He's trying to decide whether he should vote back here in Wellington or down there. You're often in quite um, temporary accommodation. So there's quite a, a lot of change. And interestingly, one of the arguments for going to 16 is that 16-year-olds are more stable in their life changes than 18-year-olds. <laughs> so they tend to be living at home and having the same address and know the community that they're living in, um, whereas by 18, you've often lost that connection. So there are a lot of reasons why that group has been lower in their performance. And some of the political science research suggests that um, young people these days are strongly motivated by what we call cause and identity politics. Mm. And so they tend to have particular causes or things related to identity that they're passionate about, but they these don't necessarily align to political parties. So there is some quite interesting stuff happening um, with that demographic as well that isn't entirely explained or very inadequately explained by political apathy. But nonetheless, the stereotype, if indeed that's what it is, of youth not being that interested in politics persists. And tied up with the whole conversation about whether or not the voting age should be lowered is the separate but closely related issue of civics education in New Zealand. Often these two things are conflated, lower the voting age and introduce better civics education in schools so young people are better informed when they finally do get to the polls. But what does civics education actually mean? Is it just learning about politics and political parties and history, that kind of thing? No, definitely we need to learn about political parties and processes. I think that's a really important part of civics education because some of the research shows quite a bit of party volatility of young voters, particularly from Austria, who flipped you know, from the far left to the far right, and that seemed to indicate a lack of civics knowledge. But the really interesting thing is that when we look at the longitudinal studies, which I have a, a handful of, of what it took for, for adults to become involved for a lifetime of participation – there was a number of things about the type of citizenship education which they received. So this was things like they were educated in inclusive and democratic school environments. Their teachers encouraged critical thought, active dialogue. They followed current issues and controversial issues. And in, in fact, this my own research has identified that real-world issues and the study of them as opposed to imaginary ones is probably this, one of the strongest keys to getting young people both interested, engaged and informed with issues that matter to them. The kind of education that exposes students to civic role models of their own age and also of all ages and provides opportunities for young people to become civically engaged. That type of education has a huge 
amount of impact on long-term civic engagement. How does that kind of manifest at the moment in terms of our society here in New Zealand? We have um, a subject called social studies, which by and large is the vehicle through which we um, deliver forms of citizenship education in New Zealand. And it's been around since about 1944 when it was established post-war as a way to kind of um, quicken students' engagement with um, things of government. Um, And it's quite an interdisciplinary um, curriculum area. It extends from years one to 10 as a compulsory part of our curriculum. And then from years 11 to 13, you can opt to take senior social studies, which is basically an in-depth exploration of um, the ideas of, of social studies. And so we do have this as a primary vehicle to deliver citizenship education. And in social studies, we learn about societal organisation, cultural identity, rights, and so on. And also, we hopefully encourage young people to develop the skills of citizenship as well. But we do have a few problems with the delivery of this in that it's rather eclectic and a bit patchy between schools. So even though we have compulsory standard about learning about the processes of government and comparing them with other governments around the world, students can get quite a patchy exposure to that depending on the knowledge of their teachers. And of course, rightly or wrongly, a lot of people would probably be a bit uncomfortable with teachers introducing their kids to national politics. Accusations of bias and brainwashing will get thrown around. You'd have to tread very gently indeed. So I asked Gina Dow-McClay, who left Wellington's St Mary's College last year, what sort of civics education she got at high school. Yeah, I've been thinking about this. Honestly, it's hard for me to differentiate between the stuff that I learn in high school and then the stuff that I just um, researched myself. Mm. Um, we definitely did a bit of history um, about yeah how, you know, when we talked about when um, Europeans came to New Zealand, there was a talk about how the governing structures and systems changed. Um, but a lot of what I know, I think, is me having the access to internet and being able to research it for myself. The way that young people learn things is definitely a bit different. And um, I am someone who's been very fortunate to have access to the internet for quite a few years now um, and like have my own phone and stuff. And so, and I've been on social media a lot as well. And that's kind of how I've um, gained a lot of the knowledge and information I know. And so, yeah, when older people uh, kind of forget that or ignore that, I'm a bit like, well, actually, I do really know what the global issues are happening because I get to read news not from only from New Zealand but from around the world as well. You mentioned earlier that you know one of the glues of society at the moment, I suppose, is social media, and that social media can um, can help people, you know, access information and and help people sort of educate themselves. Um, but of course, in recent weeks, we've also seen the flip side of, of this, which is that social media can be a real hub for misinformation. Do you think that's a worry? That's a danger? I think, yeah, there are definitely some dangers when it comes to social media. Um, but thinking back to high school, particularly in my last couple of years, they started educating us on that as well. They would teach us you know, how to spot fake news and um, you know, telling us how to um, check for multiple sources of information before we were to write assignments or to draw conclusions from things. And so I think that um, educators have now realised that um, the internet, while it has a great um, and awesome vast amount of information we can learn from, um, can have some of that misinformation. And so I've started to teach young people um, how to spot that, which I think is really important. 
If you were the boss, you know, if you were the dictator of education, which is a new governmental role, which I have created just now, and you were allowed <laughs> to implement your autocratic reforms um, as to citizenship education and how it functioned in schools, like what, what would you emphasise? What would you change about the way that we do things at the moment to, to create a more informed voter base? A really important aspect is resourcing. So at the moment, schools are left pretty much to their own resources to develop anything which matches the curriculum. So we're very light in New Zealand on things like textbooks and public resourcing. There has been a recent resource put out under the School Leavers Toolkit for Civics and Citizenship Education, which is a new thing that's only come out in the last couple of months. So there is a little bit of enhancement there. But what I really would like is to give some teachers some wonderful professional development to show them the type of things they could be doing. And I love a really engaged, critical, controversial social issues approach to the study of anything to do with citizenship education and a highly active kind of response. So we do have some of this in our schools, but we also could enhance it more by providing resources and research and so on that helped teachers implement this really well, as opposed to tokenistically or quite thinly, a quite minimal exposure to civics education actually turns students off. Mm. So, yeah, I would encourage a really rich and deep exposure to the fullness of what citizenship education could be. And I think it's important to recognise it isn't just school here that develops the citizen. Citizens are created by their holistic environment around them. And things like whānau or parents discussing political issues is also um, very significant. Things like living in a very civically responsive neighbourhood appears to have a long-term impact on people's participation into the future. And doing a whole lot of extracurricular things like, you know, helping out volunteering, helping at the marae, being involved in wider societal things also serve to develop citizenship skills. So it's really important to recognise it's not only schools that play a part here. That's it for today. I'm Emil Donovan. The detail is brought to you by newsroom.co.nz and made possible by RNZ and NZ On Air. You can get us downloaded free to your mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform. And if you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so other people can find us too. Today's episode was engineered by Adrian Holley and produced by Alexia Russell. And thanks to Gina Dow-McClay and Dr. Bronwyn Wood. Matewa. Matewa.